the Gerontological Society of America, Advancing Innovation in Aging. GSA on Aging, I'm Howard Dagenholz, Social Media Editor of The Gerontologist, a publication of the Gerontological Society of America. Suzanne Meeks is a professor in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences and PI of the Aging and Mental Health Lab at the University of Louisville. She's also the editor-in-chief of The Gerontologist. I spoke with her about the February 2021 special issue, Gerontology in a Time of Pandemic, Part 1. We also briefly touched on articles in Part 2, which was published online in March. Suzanne, this is a great collection of articles. I am so impressed. Has the gerontologist ever done a two-part special issue before? I do not know, but not on my watch. Not on your Um, watch. uh, That's, you know, not in the last seven or eight years anyway. (laughs) I think it it really goes to the importance of the issue and really how everybody's attention was uh, put 100% onto this topic. Yeah, we were pretty overwhelmed with the number of submissions. Uh, It was obviously something that, well, I was kind of surprised that the researchers were on it so fast, you know, that we had submissions almost instantaneously. And this was back last spring, you know, spring of 2020. Yes. And the papers that I want to talk to you about today are uh, very labor-intensive Work so I'm I'm quite impressed that people were able to produce these and turn them around and kudos to you and the editorial team for uh, really getting them through the process in a timely way. Well, our editorial board and reviewers were amazing this uh, summer. They just stepped up and we asked for one week and we got it from so many people. Uh, despite all the other things that they were dealing with. So we were very fortunate to get our reviewers on these papers right away so that we could have a quick turnaround to get them out again. That's really fantastic. So so I chose three of the articles to talk about. There really is a, uh, it really is a fantastic collection, but I chose three that I thought really demonstrated the breadth of research that is in this issue, which I think is also really emblematic of some of the best work in The Gerontologist. Mm -hmm. So the first paper is National Profiles of Coronavirus Disease 2019, Mortality Risks by Age Structure and Pre-Existing Health Conditions. The first author is Ashton Verdery. Um, uh, Can you tell us... uh, you want to tell us a little bit about this paper, uh, why you selected it, and uh, what is it? What do we think it shows about the nature of the pandemic? Well, I think one of the most noteworthy things of this paper is that it's it's international um, viewpoint, and also it's sort of a ten thousand foot viewpoint of the pandemic. So rather than looking at risk for infection at the individual level. They're looking at country level and they're able therefore to look at age and health as risk factors um, at a a much 
broader level at that international level. They um, had 42 countries in their samples. Um, and those countries spanned uh, Europe and the United States, and uh, but also the global South and Asia. Um, they were all over. And so it was a really broad, broad sample. What they were doing was taking mostly uh, studies that were sister studies to our health retirement study here in the U.S., and they were able to match data across those many different studies. I mean, uh, methodologically, it was really quite an undertaking to get that out as fast as they did. But what they were looking at was, um, so we, we all knew right away that there was this age risk, and we also had been hearing that there were health risks, and the age risk was sort of was leading to some ageism that we were seeing in the media and also in uh, social media and so forth. And so they were looking at this again from this 10,000 foot view or higher um, to look at whether age is really the factor or health is really the factor or how those two things interacted. Um, and so if uh, age and health are not strongly correlated as risk factors, then we'd be missing, by looking at age, we'd be missing a huge international risk factor. You know, people would be saying, well, I'm not old, so I don't have to worry about it. Right. Um, when in fact, uh, this was a, a pandemic that might have been affecting many people, not just old people. We didn't really know at the very beginning how broad that impact was. So, um, so that is really, I think, one of the the main reason why this was this was selected. And of course, their methodology is is sound and you know appropriately reviewed and so forth. Um, this this ability to harmonize data across all of these different countries was, uh, I, I think, just really phenomenal. So I'm looking at the list of countries. A couple of thoughts occur to me. One is the, the, the importance of age and really teasing age and health uh, risk apart is really important because there are countries with a relatively older age structure and countries with a relatively younger age structure. And mm -hmm. anecdotally, some countries are doing well in terms of mortality. And some of those countries have an, uh, a relatively old age structure, for example, Korea and Japan. Um, so, so that makes us question, uh, what is the relative role of age and the health risk of the population? So uh, I'm wondering if where countries that have a for examples of countries that have a relatively young age structure and how are they faring? So they looked at age risk profile and health risk profile separately. And what they found was that they were not um, highly correlated with one another. So you had countries that were going to be at risk because of their age structure and other countries that are at risk for their health structure. Um, and so, for example, if I'm, I'm looking at a table that, that shows your age risk profile, and there you have Japan, Greece, Italy, Poland, France as the top um, places. But then if you look at the health risk profile, you have the Russian Federation, the US, Portugal, Lithuania, and Poland 
the only one that is in both of those lists is Poland. So, um, so you have, you know, some that would have kind of moderate risks on both areas and others that only have risk in one area. And the U.S. is one where the um, health risk is a greater problem than the age risk. The United States is a positive outlier on the health risk uh, profile, and it's a little hard to see where it falls on the age risk profile, but it is, um, well, it's also, it has a lower age risk and a high uh, mortality risk. So I I don't think we're doing that great on both metrics. Um, No, the U.S. doesn't come out really great. Um, No. One factor that I don't see in their discussion, they brings it up a couple of times, is the uh, mitigation strategies undertaken by the countries. And we know that countries have really varied in terms of their mitigation approaches. So I'm wondering if uh, if you have any thoughts on how mitigation strategies might um, how mitigation strategies might be um, operating in these data. Um, you know, it, it, we have, of course, no data from the from this study about that, so we don't really know. Um, there, so another of the papers that we're going to talk about actually gives us some hints mm-hmm. about um, mitigation strategies in terms of psychosocial well-being um, and stress, but um, but not so much in terms of protection. Um, when there are uh, uh, these, you know, either age or health risks. Um, So, and and we certainly know that countries took very different approaches uh, to mitigation. Um, So I haven't seen those data. I don't know um, how how those data uh, come together. Um, and don't recall seeing a paper that brings them together in that way. It's almost like we want to take uh, several of these papers and mix them together. Well, one hopes that these papers are a jumping off point for other studies where people can start to do those more fine-grained analyses as data becomes available um, and as we see what we don't know. You know, um, right. so it, this is really just the beginning. There were some studies um, that came out in the gray literature uh, that looked at international comparisons of um, self-reported mask use and infection rates that showed, uh, you know, that purported to show that countries where the population was more adherent to the mask use and uh, was we're having lower rates of infection and uh, consequent mortality. So, one my uh, inclination would be that it would moderate the effect of both age and risk factors, health risk factors on um, mortality. Um, but you know that I think you're right. I think that study remains to be done. Right, because it's also you can also pose the hypothesis that. Um, that they're confounded because um, countries that are really organized in their mitigation effects, which means they have strong public health infrastructures, um, would also maybe have better population health. 
Well, yeah, that's, I was having the exact same thought at the same time that they do have. Uh, so we're sort of talking about the Northern European, Scandinavian countries where you do have uh, better access to healthcare. You also have uh, relatively um, longer uh, longevity and lower morbidity. Uh, so right. there's, there's both health system factors and lifestyle factors that uh, play into that. Right. Suzanne, what do you think we can learn from this kind of international comparison? How do you think this evidence sheds light on policies and practices in the United States? One thing that comes to mind immediately thinking about this is that when we when we only look at our uh, science that occurs within the United States and policies and so forth that are happening within the United States, we really narrow our understanding of these phenomena and we start to think um, in sort of a, um, you know, American exceptionalism way about how, you know, great or not great our science is without thinking, without seeing all of the other possibilities, the other ways of thinking that different um, government structures and different cultures and so forth bring to these crises. Um, so that's one piece. And the other piece is just recognizing that a global crisis is a global crisis. It's not just happening to us. It's happening to everybody. And yes. if we think about it as just happening to us, our solutions are not going to be effective um, because it, it, whatever we do is going to be affected by what everybody else is doing. Um, so this, this big, that's, you know, this, this, uh, global view and high level global view can really help us take that broader perspective that gives us um, additional questions to ask that we probably wouldn't even think of if we were just thinking about what's going on in the U.S. Let's shift gears and talk about the second paper in the list. So this is, uh, I love the title of this paper. This one uh, catches your eye and I know that was the intention of the authors, but this is, this paper is titled it's pure panic, the portrayal of residential care in American newspapers during COVID-19 by Laura Allen. So tell, tell us about this article. Uh, what attracted you to it? Um, what's the contribution here? Um, so I should say that this is the, um, the analysis approach in this paper is pretty unusual, at least for what we publish in our journal. And um, I really appreciated um, that the novelty of it. Um, I uh, so I think that's part of it. Um, these are researchers, I should say. The um, the senior author is uh, Liet. I don't know how to pronounce his name actually. Ayalon, um, who is very well known in uh, terms of doing ageism research. So I think they were looking at how uh, sort of inherent. Uh, ageist bias might be affecting the, the discourse in our American newspapers about COVID-19. Um, but uh, what attracted me to it is the fact that, so they're, they're working on portrayal of residential care, and I have done most of my research in residential care. They're noting um, the exclusion of residents' voices in the discourse. Um, I think was the thing that that most interested me. That's a really interesting point. In my own work, we had to go tools down with all of our uh, studies. So we were not able to go into nursing homes to do any right. interviews. But, and we're still 
uh, we, we stopped all of our telephone interviews and we stopped all of our field work and we still are not, uh, we still don't have a green light to be doing in-person uh, interviews. So, uh, so it's practically impossible, at least from, from our team, to do research in a nursing home setting, even into 2020. And I don't really know when we'll have that opportunity. So, right. so actually physically, practically getting residents' voices into the story, I think was was uh, prohibitively difficult. It's very difficult, exactly. Yeah, and maybe we should back up, Howard, and, and talk about what these researchers actually did, because it's interesting. So they were analyzing um, American newspapers. Uh, so they used uh, three newspapers, New York Times, USA Today, and the New York Post. Um, and they were looking at 54 news articles that were published um, in early 2020, um, that uh, I had I had something to do with residential care, um, right. and then they used a um, a thematic, a qualitative analysis of the texts in those newspapers. Um, right. right, and they identified several important themes. Uh, from that um, analysis, of, of course, the first one, uh, as you mentioned, is that the residents' voices are excluded from the discourse. The second was that residents are entirely helpless, that this was a disaster waiting to happen, and that it's just shocking that it's pure panic. It's it's interesting because my my read on this paper is that they... They, they have a toolkit about ageism and studying ageism and the language uh, that we that's used and really applied it to this uh, focal moment. And I think it was a very productive uh, analysis. Do you, do you agree with that? I do agree with it. And it's a very, um, there's a big contrast, um, actually. There's another paper that's in the collection uh, I can't remember if it's in the February or the March issue that actually uh, takes the perspective of the family members and the importance of the family members and sort of emphasizes that. So this is a really interesting contrast uh, to this other paper, which is arguing for how you know family members got left out and they've been so critical, and um, which is is probably true also. I mean, certainly that has been the experience of family members who uh, interact with long-term care. Um, but this one is um, sort of giving another point of view that suggests that some of that discomfort and pain that the family members were experiencing was overshadowing the actual experience of the residents themselves. It's interesting to consider how the um, media coverage of what was going on in residential care in 2020 affected um, just the way the pandemic was perceived and understood. But also I think it had an effect on the academy and how researchers went about puzzling out what was going on in nursing homes. I think it put people into a very difficult situation because there's no 
uh, lack of criticism of the nursing home industry in the academic literature. Correct. So, however, one of the things that I saw in as a discourse, from a discourse perspective, was that the academics were being very measured in their language with regard to the industry and were very careful not to avoid saying, this is a terrible industry this, that's completely at blame, because that was the message that was coming out of the newspapers right. at the time. And there were no, there were no stars, there were no leaning, you know, or I should say, there were very few positive examples mm -hmm. and mostly negative examples coming, um, coming out of the residential care or long-term care uh, facility sector uh, during that time. So I think, it, I think it had some interesting ripple effects, the way the media coverage uh, played out over the course of the year. Right. And I think that that all could be, um, you know, that could be a catalyst for change but also did some damage, I think, for the folks actually working in long-term care um, to feel that blame. Um, but it, I think for, from the perspective of the journal, the thing that I love is that we are showing this perspective side by side, in a sense, with another perspective about the same industry and probably several others. That, um, that And that's why academics are measured, right? Because there are so, it's a very complex problem. Yes. And uh, we know that, and we know that there's no easy. So there are, are no easy solutions out there, and that having all these different perspectives and sort of weighing all those different perspectives is really the way forward. I think it'll be very interesting to read these the uh, uh, family caregiver paper side by side with uh, with this paper with this one uh, when they're both um, uh, published. So. Mm -hmm. You, you said catalyst for action. So I was really thinking about that as I was reading this paper. And I wonder if, um, I wonder if the really very overwhelmingly negative framing of the industry that comes through in this analysis, I wonder if that has an effect on the policy options that are opened up for consideration in terms of reform. I think we, you know, I, I've been saying, and I've been interviewed myself by the media, that there's a possible window for reform in the nursing home sector and also in assisted living sector uh, that's, that's uh, really come out of the uh, crisis. And the, what I wonder in reading this is whether the, the, the language and framing is going to lead to a certain flavor of policies that might be different if the, if the media coverage had a, a different tenor. Yeah, you might be right. And, and um, it, what I was thinking as you were saying that, Howard, is possibly more of the same because the regulations of long-term care are largely already punitive rather than uh, incentivized, you know? Right. So, uh, so it's, a, it's definitely a punishment-oriented set of regulations. Um, right. and, um, and negative, uh, negative portrayals in media, negative public portrayals of an industry tends to lead to that kind of regulation. 
sort of reactive regulation um, in my experience. So, um, so that's a little worrisome actually, because I'm not sure that that kind of punitive approach is really going to make much difference. Um, I think that there are um, the kinds of changes that need to be made are not um, about tougher regulation of quality of care, um, but rather innovations in types of care and patient-centeredness. Um, and you're not going to regulate yourself into patient-centeredness. So, um, so that worries me actually a little bit. I, I agree. That is my concern. I, I don't know what a future regulatory framework might be, but I think that a, a system that provides incentives for improving quality of care and quality of life, as opposed to punishing poor quality of care and poor quality of life, would probably go a long way towards achieving that goal. I agree, but there are also, you know, as we know, fundamental funding problems in the system that, if not corrected, are are it's going to be very difficult to make any meaningful reform. Well, that's the you know that's that's kind of the fear that I was uh, feeling as I was reading this, which is. Um, you know, when I say that there's sort of a policy window opening up, one of the policies is uh, that I, th I think is uh, one of the policies that's getting a lot of scrutiny is the way we pay nursing homes and yeah. the reliance on Medicaid and the cross subsidizing of uh, daily care and operations through Medicare has led to a situation where the nursing home is really balancing some residents, customers who are money losers, and some residents and customers who are profitable. And the net effect is keeping them very close to uh, being in the red financially. So why do we have a system where Medicaid can reimburse nursing homes for less than the cost of care and Medicare reimburses for comparatively higher than the cost of care? And I, I think, I would like to think that we're, when I say the policy window is opening up, we're, we're going to ask the question of, should that really be allowed? And should we reconsider the financing, at least in this one particular uh, sector of long-term care, to really uh, put the providers on a more stable financial footing? When I think about the policy window opening up, one of the policies that I think ought to be considered is the way long-term care is financed and notwithstanding the balance between home and community-based services and residential facilities, really putting the different payers on equal footing, I think is an important policy goal. However, with this overwhelmingly negative framing in terms of how we got into this situation, it, it makes me wonder if, re if reforming the financing might come as a package deal with even more burdensome and punitive uh, um, regulations. 
Yes, and I, I think that's possible um, because I think there are, and it, there probably are some specific um, changes that are needed to um, uh, infection control, for example, that could have mitigated some of the spread of COVID-19 in nursing homes and so forth. Um, <clears throat> And so there are, uh, you know, there are needs to look at that, but there always is that risk of the pendulum just going too far. And I think without, uh, without a big change in funding, the punitive part will be detrimental rather than helpful. Um, so yeah, I don't, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I, I agree with you. I think there's a window opening. Um, and, and, and this is an opportunity for gerontologists to step into that window and try to influence policy, I think. Um, and, you know, going back to this article, perhaps also an opportunity for people who are actually living this, people who are in nursing homes and other residential care settings to be asked, uh, what would they like to see differently? Um, and to find out about their experience. When we are able to get into these facilities to talk to people about what they experienced, I think it's gonna be really interesting. I think there's gonna be a lot of scholarship that comes out of that experience. Um, finding out what people want in terms of their own living environment and and lives i think is always important but also understanding the subjective experience of people who've lived through this will be uh, really quite valuable i i would hope that that becomes a leading voice in the in any reforms that are to come down the pike yeah i think that would be really a, a, a breath of fresh air if that were the case Let's shift to this third paper. This is another national comparison. And I selected it and I wasn't really thinking that, oh, this is another you know, international comparison paper. But really, I selected it because there were, I thought it was a good example of a body of papers that were really looking at the stress and coping and psychological consequences of the pandemic. And this one uh, happened to be another international paper, but I thought it was uh, particularly insightful and also quite sophisticated from the methodological point of view. This is social isolation and psychological distress during the COVID-19 pandemic across national analysis by Hyun Stu Kim. Right, and so the authors are um, in Singapore Yes, I recall correctly. Um, and this one is striking too because they were not using existing data. Um, so they collected data on perceptions of the COVID-19 pandemic from 13,000, over 13,000 participants in 62 countries. That's really fascinating. Actually, I didn't even pick that up. I thought that they were drawing on a study that had been in the field. I don't think so. I think they, uh, I mean, if, if, if they had, they were adding on to it. Uh, but the study's called COVID-19 uh, pandemic. I mean, it was it, marched on March, launched on March 20th and completed on April 5th of 2020. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the, um, the miracle of the internet, uh, yes. to be able to collect that kind of data, um, is really amazing. And, and, um, 
and looking specifically at social isolation, which um, has been bandied about, and we have several papers about loneliness and social isolation in the special collection. Um, but I've also, you know, there's been a lot of back and forth whether um, social isolation was having an impact on mental health in this crisis. We know that social isolation has an impact on mental health overall. Um, you know, social isolation is can be even deadly for people and older people included, almost anyone, but older people included. Um, so this was interesting that they were um, they were tackling these ideas of social isolation and mental health. Um, so of course they are testing that hypothesis that social isolation due to that physical distancing during COVID-19 was associated with uh, psychological distress, but they're also looking at um, mediators of that um, that include country responses uh, to the pandemic. Um, so they they asked about uh, or they looked at uh, countries where there was um, more mortality uh, versus countries that had less mortality, and uh, also um, looked at uh, people's perceptions of the. Um, I think it was the people's perception the stringency of measure. the stringency of the measures. I think that was a perception of the respondents that they were looking at um, and the state capacity uh, and also the how global the country was. In other words, how many people are coming and going from different areas of the world in the country. So they had a, a bunch of hypotheses that were uh, well grounded in theories of social uh, social interaction and stress, uh, which are, you know, pretty uh, well um, conceived theories that are out there. But uh, so I think that was an interesting feature of the paper was, you know, large data set pulled together really quickly. I saw lots of papers pulled together really quickly. What well, this one was theoretical, had clear a priori hypotheses to test some of these um, external influences on people's responses to their restrictions um, that they were experiencing. Susan, what do you think is the, the most pandemic? interesting finding out of this paper? Okay, well, there were two. And one was this interaction between people's distress coming from the isolation that they were experiencing because of COVID-19 and their perception of their country's capacity to cope with the pandemic. So if they felt that their country was not coping as well with the pandemic or didn't have the capacity to cope with the, the pandemic, they were going to have more stress, more distressed reaction to being cooped up. And if they thought that their country could handle it, had the capacity, then being cooped up didn't bother them as much. That's a, a lay translation of that interaction. Mm -hmm. um, and then it was kind of the opposite thing uh, when they when they were very stringent anti-coronavirus policies, people also felt uh, less upset mm -hmm. in uh, response to their social isolation. Well, those seem to be consistent, right? Like yes, a capa exactly. High capacity and high uh, stringency would seem to go together, right? That's right. That's yeah. right. So. Um, so essentially what they're, what they're saying is that, yes, social isolation can be 
um, damaging to your mental health. It can create a lot of distress, but not so much if you feel like there's, uh, if, if you feel like your government is kind of on top of it and taking yes. care of things, um, then people are more willing, uh, I guess, to social isolate or more comfortable with the social isolation is really what they were measuring is there's, they just didn't feel as much distress around being isolated. Um, if they felt like, uh, their country was, um, uh, able to handle, uh, the, um, the crisis. So there are a number of other papers in the collection that are about stress and coping. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering if, and in your read of this as a body of work, if this is consistent, what, what it says to me, and you can tell me if, if I'm on track with this, is that one of the things about stress and coping is that people are exposed to stressors and cope differentially. And some people cope in effective ways and some people cope in ineffective ways. And when your coping strategy is not well uh, tailored to the actual stressor, then that's one of the factors that leads to negative consequences. So what I'm, so a little bit of what I'm hearing here is that, or seeing in this paper, is that those messages that people were receiving and internalizing about their national, the national response in their country was ameliorating some of the stress. Right. That, that's how I read it too. And I think that's really interesting. It, and, you know, their, their conclusion is we need to think about the moderating role of national context in studying how people are responding to a crisis. And instead of, and it kind of goes back to that other paper that we talked about, that global level, um, that it's not just about individuals coping with the crisis or even small communities coping with the crisis. It's about the, the, the whole national context um, in which people experience something like a pandemic. Right. So it does, it does uh, interestingly, kind of comes together, right? Because, well, how do we know what our national responses except through the media. Mm -hmm. So the messages that we're getting through the media about how well is our, how is this pandemic, what's happening with this pandemic? How is it affecting people and how well is our country or government responding? That does seem to have an effect at the individual level. And it's interesting because it's not just, um, with these international comparisons, what it's showing is that it's an aggregate effect. It's not just, oh, it relieved, my government relieved my stress. No, the government response in general is, is leading to lower distress on average with the, at the individual level. Right, that's what it looks like. Yeah, so there's this interesting interplay between that national and global context and individual responding. So when we have to bring back in some of the observations from the second paper, a conversation that's about blame and fault and uh, real failure of government to protect the most vulnerable, that certainly can't go very well towards uh, perceptions of the quality of the national response. No, and it actually... Um 
plays also back into the first paper in the sense that if that's where the um, national press conversation is focused, so the horrible experience of old people shut up in nursing homes, you know, um, then the national attention is diverted from the fact that, in fact, there are other risk factors besides being in a nursing home or being old um, that are significant. And um, therefore, nationally, we're not coping with the broader pandemic. Um, you know, and I think that was a dynamic in the United States. So it's interesting how that plays out. Yeah, I saw something also subtly different where the reporting on nursing homes and what was going on in long-term care was that it was very, it was negative and punitive and critical, as we were just saying, but that most of the coverage was not dealing with that population in general. Mm -hmm. So when it did turn to talking about that population, it was really quite, um, you know, it was with these sort of negative framing as we see in this article. But I really thought that that was not the majority of the uh, overall coverage, which I think turns out to be problematic when you look at the way mortality was distributed between the general community, general population, and residential facilities. Right. Right. So tell us about part two of the... (laughs) Uh, special issue. Can you give us a uh, a preview or a couple highlights of what, what, what to look forward to? One of the things that's going to be in the next issue is an editorial by um, Cheryl Zimmerman and um, Bob Resnick and members of the GSA COVID-19 task force, which had come together really quickly to uh, sort of set a research priority, a research agenda. Uh, related to COVID-19. And so they're going to comment on the whole collection, but also next steps. So getting back to what we talked about earlier about where is this all going to lead us in terms of research, some of that's going to be in their editorial. Fantastic. Yeah. And there are a series of forums in this next one that are pretty interesting, a forum uh, being a more uh, sort of a, a literature review with a thesis, arguing for a thesis. Um, and uh, one that uh, I think is, is really interesting has to do with uh, looking at a concept of, uh, called compassionate ageism, hmm. um, which I think is relevant to some of what we've already talked about today. This idea that um, it's sort of a positive ageism, uh, on the positive ageism side of how we can actually, by caring, in a sense, caring too much, uh, for older adults, we can disempower. Hmm. Um, and uh, so I, I, I think that's an interesting concept that I hadn't really thought about before. Um, and uh, this, and it's nicely laid out in that editorial. Is that like the concept of uh, doing two versus doing four that comes yes. up in the caregiving literature? Yes. Uh, yes, I think that is um, related to that. It's the notion that it's sort of how can I help you um, almost uh, assuming that you need help before actually finding out that you do. Mm -hmm. And that Um, essentially robs people of agency. Right. They use the term caremongering 
Um, and and it's that's the title of it: Caremongering and the Assumptions of Need: The Spread of Compassionate Ageism During COVID nineteen. So, uh, very interesting paper. Um, yeah. Oh, I, I'm I'm very interested to read that. Over the past year, you know, over the years, I've had you know interesting encounters with people, especially people from the private sector that want to solve the problems of aging through um, you know volunteers and and uh, you know friendly visitors and caregivers using college students and apps and technology. And I think it, it all sort of falls into that bucket of, um, you know, shoving aid and care into, pe- into people's faces. Yeah, there's a really great example in this, um, in this article. I, I com- commend, you, commend it to you uh, to look at that. There's an illustration that's pretty, uh, pretty, pretty well hits home. So, um, Another one I think that's going to garner a fair amount of attention is called a toxic trend, generational conflict and connectivity in Twitter discourse under the um, hashtag boomer remover um, or the the boomer remover hashtag, Mm -hmm. um, which is engaging one of the things that we talked about when we were writing the call for this special collection, which was that there was this hashtag out there. Yes. about uh, um, how COVID-19 would be removing baby boomers, essentially. Right. Um, and so this is taking on that whole notion of uh, generational con- conflict um, in the face of a pandemic. Um, I love how- it. True, true to form, the, um, the hashtag is off by probably about 10 years. Yes, it is. <laughs> the boomers are probably quite successful if we look at the you know the distribution of mortality. Exactly, it's the uh, generation before them that's unfortunately being removed. And there have been young people also affected, of course. So um, then there are a few more about stress um, and emotional reactions to the um, pandemic uh, outcomes, quite a few of them, actually. There's a whole bunch of them on well-being and loneliness, stress, uh, stress responses, but each bringing something slightly different. Um, So, uh, yeah, it's an interesting collection. Again, international authors uh, throughout. Uh, So bringing that international perspective that we so often have in the gerontologists, um, I think it's going to be a good read. Suzanne, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss this uh, special issue. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Howard. Thank you for uh, asking some good questions. Thanks for listening. To learn more about The Gerontologist and to read its latest articles, visit the website at www.geron.org. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to promote the scientific study of aging, to encourage exchanges among researchers and practitioners from the various disciplines related to gerontology, and to foster the use of gerontological research in forming public policy.